Good morning. It's great to be with all of you this morning. I want to invite you all to uh, open your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 20. John chapter 20 and the verses we'll be considering this morning are verses 24 to 31. You may have noticed we're quickly approaching the end of John's Gospel. Just uh, 31 short verses in chapter 20 and... Uh, in this chapter, we, we witness four examples of faith. And when we zoom out and, and take a look at this chapter, um, there are essentially four different scenes that reveal to us four responses to the risen Christ. First was Peter and John, and although they never see the risen Lord, they see the empty tomb and the, the linen clothes laying there. And John, who reached the tomb first, he tells us, stooped in, and the Bible says, he saw and believed. Next was Mary Magdalene, and you'll remember Mary thinks she's speaking to the gardener until Jesus calls her by name, Mary. Mary, and her eyes are open, and, and she runs and tells the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And then in his third appearance in John, Jesus walks White through locked doors that we saw last week. And what does Jesus say? Peace be with you. But they were terrified, Scripture says, and frightened and thought that they had seen a spirit. And so Luke 24, verse 38, Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe for joy, they marveled. He said to them, have you anything to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Verse 45 says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Well, we find out in our verses today that one of the disciples missed church that week. And guess who it was? Thomas, yeah, good. Thomas. In fact, uh, these are the verses that got Thomas's nickname, Doubting Thomas, but Jesus doesn't leave Thomas hanging. God has big plans for Thomas. So if you have your Bibles open this morning, um, let's read our, our verses here. We are in John chapter 20, starting in verse uh, 24. This is the word of the true and living God. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, or Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, 
and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We continue this morning with now the fourth appearance of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. And John picks up this account eight days later after the Lord first had appeared to the disciples. And, and for reasons unknown, Thomas had, had missed the meeting the week before. He wasn't there, and so he is yet to see the risen Christ. And I think we need to ask ourselves, why does John include this event? It's not in any of the other synoptic Gospels. Only in John do we find this story. So, why does John include it? Does it coincide with John's purpose for writing this Gospel so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name? John isn't just writing for us a, a historical account of, of Jesus' Christ or, or of the Lord's ministry. This is the gospel of believing. And nearly a hundred times in this gospel is the call to believe. Or they believed. This Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. John wants us to believe so that you may have life in his name. Life eternally for the salvation of your souls, yes. But also life now. He wants to see transformation in our lives. After all, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus says, I have come that they may have life, life abundantly to the full, to the max. And I think to be fair to Thomas, before we jump into the story, we need to take a step back before we go forward. So if you have your Bibles open, just turn back to uh, John chapter 11. Just a couple pages. John chapter 11. It's the uh, account of, of Lazarus. You'll remember in... Um, John 11, Lazarus has just died in, in Bethany of Judea. It's just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. And in verse 7, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jump down to verse 14. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And then notice what Thomas says here in verse 16. We don't have many verses of Thomas and what he said and, and what kind of a disciple he might have been. But here we get a little bit of a glimpse. 
So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. What do we learn about Thomas here? Um, I think we could say that he's loyal. He's trusting of the Lord. Maybe you would say he was bold. He's, he's willing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, even if it means certain death. Jump to uh, John chapter 14 and, and the upper room discourse. Jesus, uh, you'll remember, is just hours from the cross and, and he sees his disciples' hearts and they are fearful of living life without him. They, they are overwhelmed by sadness. They don't understand why he's leaving. So Jesus says, 14 verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. In verse 5, it's once again Thomas who, who pipes up. He says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here we see something else about Thomas. You might say he, he appears to be genuine with his, his thoughts. He's not afraid to, to ask the Lord hard questions that he doesn't understand. A lot of times when we don't understand someone, we just go, oh, oh yeah, I get what you mean. <laughs> right? But not Thomas. He wants to understand his Lord. And I think one of the reasons John includes this is because Thomas represents every single one of us B.C., before Christ. Before Christ. Christ, we were all filled with doubts, regardless of what your mother might have told you. You were not born a follower of Christ. We were all born dead in our trespasses and sins. And so I think John here highlights Thomas's doubt in part because it is through the resurrection, through the resurrection that those doubts are overcome by the reality of the risen Christ and we know how much the resurrection and faith go hand in hand Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 17 if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if in Christ we have hope in this life only then we are of all people most to be pitied all of Christianity, all of your faith hinges upon the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. So let's look at how Thomas responds to the resurrection. And I've broken our verses up this morning into uh, four headings. We begin with number one, and Thomas refusing to believe. Refusing to believe, verse 24 now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, why wasn't Thomas a part of their first Lord Day's gathering? We can only speculate. 
was possibly uh, Thomas in a, in a dark place after abandoning the Lord Jesus Christ at the Garden of Gethsemane to be arrested, and now he has heard that Jesus has been crucified? Did he think that all hope was maybe lost for him? Did he have this feeling of despair where, you know the feeling, you can't even bring yourself to, to be around other people at a time when he is in most need? Was he overcome with a sense of embarrassment and personal failure after he was the one who said to the disciples, let us go and die with him? Only to then take off the moment things got difficult? We don't know. But Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. Notice what verse 25 says. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Thomas would have heard the story of how the doors were locked and Jesus had passed right through. He would have heard about the peace of God and how Jesus showed them the, the wounds of the cross, his, his hands and his side, you'll recall. The scars that would say, forever say, I did this for you. They would have told Thomas about the, the unspeakable joy that they all felt in their hearts that day. So the other disciples were saying, we have seen the Lord. And the tense of this verb represents a continuous action. It could be translated so that the other disciples were continuing to say to him, or they kept saying to him, we have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. They couldn't contain themselves. Could you? But like for so many of us who have experienced the supernatural transforming power of God's amazing grace and, and just can't wait to share it with somebody, these disciples, when they come up to Thomas, were met with that skeptical face of his. Thomas hadn't seen, after all, what they had seen. His only reaction was to demand proof. Give me some evidence. He wouldn't believe their words. It can't be true, he thought. How could he be alive? So Thomas sets demands. Look at verse 25 again. The di disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord, but Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, before we're too hard on Thomas, let's consider the other disciples for a moment. Let's put them under the same scrutiny that we're going to put Thomas under. Turn back with me to, to Luke chapter 24, verse 10. Luke 24, we spent some time in last week. It's a, it's a great text to see some of the things that John doesn't include. Luke 24. And I want to see how the other disciples reacted the first time that they heard about the resurrected Christ. If we start early all the way back in verse 10, Luke writes, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and, and Mary, the mother of James, 
and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Hmm, what words did they not believe? Well, what the angels told them back in verses 5 through 6. To, to tell the disciples this. First they said to the women, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He is not here for he has risen. So the testimony of scripture is none of these disciples believed. They didn't believe the words that the women said when they came running and said what the angels had told them. It wasn't until that evening, resurrection Sunday, that evening, John 20, verse 19, when Jesus came and he stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So as a result of seeing the Lord, then the disciples rejoiced, you see. They were in the same boat as Thomas, were they not? And I might add, how gracious of our Lord. I mean, Thomas demanding something, he has no right to demand. To treat the risen Lord Jesus Christ like that would be irreverent. Thomas and the disciples were faithless, but God is faithful. So it begs the question, how does anyone then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? If none is righteous, Scripture says, and no one understands, and no one seeks after God, as Romans 3 says, how will anyone believe? How did I come to believe? Is it simply that one day I woke up and I decided today I'm going to start believing in Jesus? You just started out the day with a hardened heart, having no interest in God, and suddenly you just decided? Was it like that old hymn, and you said, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided. Is that what happened? Do believers in and of themselves at a point in time just say, I'm going to start believing? Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 9 gives us a, a scriptural definition of, of the supernatural, miraculous thing that happens says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this faith, <laughs> this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It, it, we can't earn it. It's God's gift to his own. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. It is God who draws man to himself. Back in John 6, verse 44, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one. Who's no one? No one. No one is everyone can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never Cast out. We love because he first loved us. 
God draws to himself according to his own mercy. Titus 3, 3 through 7 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, notice, He saved us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's pictured for us in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, when in the last days God will, will draw ethnic Israel, the apple of His eye to Himself, but it's a beautiful picture for us of the new birth thus saith the lord he says i will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness and from all your idols i will cleanse you and i will give you a new heart and a new spirit i will put within you that i put within you and i will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and i will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Father draws. The Son keeps. The Spirit regenerates and seals the believer until the day of redemption to the praise of His glory. God is sovereign over all, including the salvation of His people. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, And fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Thomas refused to believe. I will not believe, he said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will not believe. Well, <laughs> little did Thomas know the Lord was listening. The Lord was listening. He always is. And as Soon he's going to take Thomas up on this offer of his, which leads us to number two, compelled to believe. Compelled to believe. Scholars believe John takes us to the next Lord's day. Eight days, including the Sundays, have passed since the resurrection. On this occasion, Thomas is now with the disciples when the Lord appears. And, and Thomas's encounter with the Lord takes center stage. Verse 26. John writes, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. In this time, Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came. 
Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, Peace be with you. Sounds familiar, does it not? And can I just say, what grace, mercy, and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ that he puts on full display here. God pursues his people. And graciously meets them exactly where they are in their greatest point of need. Notice how Jesus immediately singles out Thomas, our ever-present high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Jesus lovingly and compassionately says to Thomas, verse 27, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. The Lord immediately invites Thomas to touch the scars of his love on his hands and side and exhorts Thomas to believe. Compare for a moment verses 25 and 27. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but the Lord graciously answers every demand Thomas made. Thomas demands, unless I see, the Lord says, see my hands. Thomas demands, and put my finger, and the Lord commands him, well, put your finger here. Thomas demands, and put my hand, and the Lord says, put it in my side. Thomas declares, I will never believe. The Lord says, do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. Jesus answers every doubt that Thomas had. Jesus knows the heart. Jesus knows the heart. You know, I, uh, I imagine Jesus appearing in that upper room, fixing his eyes right on Thomas and, and saying something like, uh, Hey, Thomas, fancy meeting you here. And after Thomas probably would have taken a big gulp, Jesus said, oh, by the way, Thomas, I think I heard you say the other day something about needing to touch my hands and my side or else you wouldn't believe. Is that what you said, Thomas? <laughs> and possibly after a silent pause from Thomas, he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. And Thomas must have just about come undone at that point, I would imagine. <laughs> As the Lord graciously meets Thomas at his point of weakness and doubt. Amazingly, without any rebuke. What love, what amazing grace. Such patient and compassion from our Lord. And he says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. And guess what? Did he ever? <laughs> In fact, Thomas 
is so overwhelmed by God's grace that he makes one of the greatest confessions of faith we have in all of Scripture. Verse 28. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. That is one of the greatest confessions you can make. It's why John wrote this gospel, so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. First, Thomas confesses Jesus as Lord. And as Lord, he is our master. You have total authority over my life. That's lordship. This is Paul's declaration in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Well-known verse. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess, and here's the name, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then Thomas also confessed Jesus as my God, my Lord and my God. And I might point out significantly, um, Jesus doesn't correct him here. He accepts Thomas's affirmation of worship as deity. Why? Because Jesus is God. <laughs> he is both fully man and fully God. He is exactly who John said he was from the very beginning of the gospel. It was back in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He has always been God. And until you know Jesus as Lord, and until you know Jesus as God... You don't know Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is God. If you've changed him in some way, and he's just a God, but not God, or if you've changed him as being created by God, just one of many gods, or in some way changed him outside of who the Bible says that he is in Scripture... You have turned to a different gospel, my friend. And Paul says, not that there is another one. Very dangerous stuff. Well, we now come to number three. The testimony believed. The testimony believed. The Lord Jesus Christ now responds to Thomas's statement of faith and in verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is a beatitude from the Lord Jesus Christ. But who is Jesus talking about? Who are those who have not seen and yet have believed? This is a special blessing for believers throughout all time who have not physically seen the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet have believed. 
Thomas saw the risen Lord and he believed. But what about those who haven't seen him? How will they believe? How will the 3,000 believe at Pentecost? How will some believe even today? Romans 10 verse 17 says, Faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. We believe in God's inspired word and the account of the witnesses who wrote it. And this is what Jesus prayed for in the high priestly prayer prayer back in John chapter 17, isn't it? He prayed in in verse 8 of John 17, for the words which you gave me, I have given to them. He's talking about his disciples. And they received them. He continues praying for them in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, the word of God. And then in verse 20, he asks the Father not only to sanctify the disciples, but for all those in the future who would believe through their written testimony. That would be us. He prays in verse 20. I do not ask for these only. I do not ask for these disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And he answered this prayer, didn't he? We believe through their word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written to us in our New Testament, the words of Christ. So, Jesus says, blessed, you have a special blessing then. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Peter writes to the church in 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, the first century church, Though you have not seen him, many of the first century believers had not seen him after the Lord ascended. These people did not see him. But listen to how Peter comforts him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. There's a special blessing for those who have not seen the Lord. If you're here, uh, a believer here this morning, this beatitude may apply to you. Hebrews chapter 11, we have what's referred to as the hall of faith. Filled with all these incredible examples of faith, the writer to the Hebrews starts in chapter 11 with a simple definition of faith. Now faith, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't need to walk through the doors of the old stone church this morning in order for us to believe. We have been blessed. We see him right now in the pages of Scripture. The Spirit testifies to the Lord. He bears witness in our hearts that the Scripture is true and that Jesus is who he says that he is. Remember the story that Jesus tells in Luke 16 of of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man had all the comforts of the world, joyously living in splendor every day, while the poor man named Lazarus was laid at the gate, covered in sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs that fell off the rich man's table. But one day, they, they both died. Lazarus goes to a place called Abraham's bosom, a picture of heaven. The rich man dies and goes to Hades, the realm of the dead, 
a picture of hell, a place of torments. And then there's a great chasm that's fixed between them. So neither can go across to either side. So the rich man cries out to Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house to warn his five brothers so they also won't come to this place of torments. And in verse 29, Father Abraham said to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What is Moses and the prophets? That is the Old Testament. In other words, what Abraham is saying is they have God's word. But the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. D.A. Carson writes, later Christians come to faith through the word of the earliest believers. Blessed then are those who cannot share in Thomas's experience of sight, but who in part, because they read of Thomas's experience, come to share in Thomas's faith. Let's move to our final heading. Point number four, written so that you may believe. Verses 30 and 31 are, are really John's formal conclusion to his gospel. Chapter 21 is more of an epilogue, and we'll find out it has its own wonderful conclusion. But these two verses here really sum up the purpose and goal of John's gospel as a whole. So let's read those again. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. What? These signs. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's two more occurrences of that word believe in just verse 31 alone. And it's been obviously a key word throughout the whole gospel. It was Thomas's struggle back in verse 25. I will not believe. Jesus said in verse 27, do not disbelieve, but believe. Again, in verse 29, Jesus said, have you believed? Because you have seen me, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. But here in verse 31, John uses that word believe two times in the, in the uh, particular tense. And I won't put you asleep with all the grammar, but, but what that means is this word can be taken one of two ways. It's either talking about your initial faith so that you may believe for the first time. But because there's a subjective here that you can read all about in your Greek grammar book, it most likely means that you might continue to believe. Now, the Gospel of John is a great book for unbelievers. It really is. You can give this Gospel to an unbeliever and have them read it, and, and it's a, a wonderful Gospel to give to them. And I think John certainly had in mind that there would be some who were skeptical and then would certainly open up the Gospel of John and, and read it. But when I read the Gospel of John, I believe that this purpose statement has in mind far more believers than it has for unbelievers. Our church and churches throughout the centuries have carefully gone verse by verse through this entire Gospel. And it's done, been done for many years. Not so that you might come to believe for the first time, though that very well may have been the case. But this was proclaimed to you so that your faith would be strengthened. 
so that your faith would be fanned by the flame and your faith would grow and build. And you see, faith, whether it's initial faith or persevering faith, needs to have both components, really. There is no faith that appears at one point and then never manifests itself again. That was never faith at all. See, true faith keeps on believing. And that's why he says in verse 31, and that believing, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you may have life in his name. Believing isn't something you did that day when you came forward at the church or when you said that prayer in the quietness of your heart or when you fell on your knees and you threw yourself at the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was just the beginning. That was the seed. That was the start. Belief, true believing, keeps on believing. You believe and then you believe again. You go to sleep, you wake up, and you keep on believing. You go through storms. You go through testings of your faith. You go through trials of various kinds. And you keep believing. And it isn't that your believing is keeping you safe. No, Jesus is the perfecter of your faith. And if we think back to even chapter 1 of John's gospel, this is where the whole thing started. He said back in John 1 verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's the initial faith, the saving faith. In verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Of God. You see, the faith that you have is the faith that God gave. The faith that you use to trust, to follow Christ, to persevere in faith, that discipleship kind of faith is exactly what John had in mind when he reminded us in John 12, verse 42, nevertheless, many, even the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. There's a lot of professing Christians like that out there. Christians by um, name only. And it depends on their circumstances on whether or not they will confess Christ or not. That isn't true saving faith. And, and that's why Jesus cries out in verse 44. He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. You can't believe in God unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't believe in Jesus unless you confess him as Lord and God. And it, it starts in the heart. God must take that heart of stone out of you and put that heart of flesh in so that he can do a work from the inside out. And then God says, and I will put my spirit with you in you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The Holy Spirit then plants the divine gift of faith. And you believe in God's word, and he sanctifies you in the truth, trusting in Christ as your Savior and Lord is the central message of John's gospel. Because it's central to what it means to be a public disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who is a part of his family, one who is adopted as his child, 
one who following him no matter the cost. B.B. Warfield said it this way, it is not strictly speaking even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or in your attitude of faith, but in the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit's working through the Gospel of John to go, grow those who are faithless and to grow those who have little faith, the size of a mustard seed, and in those whose faith is maybe prone to wander, and in those whose faith is strong, he makes it even stronger. That's why John wrote in verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, ongoing believing, you may have life in his name. And that's been John's ultimate purpose throughout this gospel, that you would believe so that you may have life in his name. He starts talking about this life he gives us really right in the opening prologue in, in John chapter 1 verse 4 he starts talking about life in him in the in the Lord Jesus Christ was life and the life was the light of men and again in John 3:15 the Lord Jesus Christ tells Nicodemus that whoever believes in him may have eternal life John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the life that, that Jesus connects his followers to, eternal life with God. And so John ends his chapter by saying, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I imagine John, as he puts down the papyrus and puts down his felt pen, Reflecting on all that the Spirit has led him to write, John, probably now in his 90s, most of the disciples have all been martyred. He's the last of the 12. And I can imagine him staring at these words, maybe tears falling down onto the paper. And, and I don't know, but, but maybe the still, quiet voice of the Lord came to him. Or maybe the Spirit began speaking to him again. And God said, I have one more chapter for you to write. And John was suddenly reminded of his dear friend Peter. A man Peter, that John preached with. A man whom he saw many signs with. Great healings and works of the Lord. A man crucified up down, upside down for his faith in Christ. A man who shared in Christ's sufferings, just as Christ said he would. And John might have suddenly recalled the last that we heard of Peter. He had denied the Lord three times. And John knows that's not how the story ended. And so John picks that pen back up and he recalls the day on the shore of Galilee when Jesus in his mercy restored his good friend Peter. And in writing this last chapter, he talked about restoring his good friend Thomas. 
But as he reflects on Peter, John adds an epilogue onto this letter. And he says, let's tell them the story of when Jesus and Peter walked on that shore and Jesus asked Peter that crucial question, Peter, do you love me? Maybe, John thinks, maybe that's the last thing that I'm going to write. I ask you today, do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love him? I pray the answer is yes. If the Lord has spoken to you this morning or touched your heart, or if you need the prayers of the church, I'd love to pray with you up front here or after the service this morning. And the rest of you, would you please stand as we sing, I will rise.